Tēnā koutou katoa, this is Pacific Waves from RNG Pacific. I'm Susana Suisuiki. E haere aki nei, an investigation is underway of a death threat made against Vanuatu's Prime Minister. Also, I want the community to know that I'm going to put them first, irrespective of the party I'm in. Former Labour councillor Efeso Collins shares his ambitions ahead of New Zealand elections. And later, a Bougainville filmmaker is in need of new equipment. Pacific analyst says Vanuatu's new Prime Minister's response to a death threat made online has been measured. The Prime Minister's office says Sato Kilman has personally advised the police commissioner to investigate. Mr Kilman is also looking at ways to educate the public on how to use social media responsibly. He stressed the importance of preserving freedom of speech while cautioning against this misuse. Lydia Lewis asked project lead for Griffith Pacific Hub, Dr Tess Newton-Kane, what this means for media freedom. It's always important to maintain a watching brief in places like Vanuatu and elsewhere in the region for moves that suppress media freedom. We've seen it happen. We've seen it threatened. Uh, we've, you know, we've, we can point to a wide range of incidents and, and things that have been said things that have been done and then backtracked. So I definitely think it is something, it is noteworthy from that point of view. Mr Kilman's response or his office's response to me seems quite measured. So he hasn't said, right, that's it, we're going to ban Facebook, which we've seen in other countries. We've seen people make that threat that they're just going to ban Facebook or, you know, ban people accessing those sites. So he's not threatening that. I think he he seems to have, reading between the lines, he seems to have an appreciation of the the relevance and the significance of social media. He's not on his own in saying that people should be using it sensibly and making death threats is a crime. How you do it is is largely irrelevant. So this person's chosen to use Facebook, but if they'd sent the Prime Minister a letter or, you know, put out a message on the radio or something, it would still be a crime. So I think um, from that point of view, I don't think that's too much of a concern other than it should alert us to the fact that he and his office are monitoring what people say about him and to him, which they should be. And we need to make sure that we're keeping an eye on how that's treated and, and what that means in going forward in terms of his tenure, what that means in terms of media freedom. I would be looking more to what comes next. So is he going to give press conferences Is uh, if if questions are put into his office? Will they be answered in a timely way? Is he going to make himself available to the media? To, you know, is he going to go on uh, TV or the radio and, and, you know, make himself available to be asked questions about his government and his policy? I imagine that the opposition will be making good use of the media, that we've seen them do that before. So I think what we really need to think about is how is the government going to be responding to those sort of normal day-to-day media requests and media engagements. And previously, what has a Sato Kilman-led government looked like in the past in terms of that communication? Yeah, good question. I mean, it's a while since Mr Kilman... So 2015 was when he was in government last. Um, 2015 was quite a tumultuous year in Vanuatu with a big cyclone and change of government and then um, a court case that saw half of that government go to jail. So there was a lot going on. Um, Generally, I mean, generally 
governments in Vanuatu, as we see elsewhere in the Pacific, tend to be reactive rather than proactive when it comes to media engagement. So, you know, he's not known for, uh, as as, uh, uh, Vanuatu prime ministers generally, not necessarily known for inviting the press to come and, and, you know, kind of like getting out on the front foot tends to be more reactive. But I guess what we'll see, what's different this time is, as we know, Vanuatu, like other Pacific Islands, there's much more focus in terms of foreign journalists being in the country, foreign visitors, high level visitors coming, which attract press attention. So there are more there are there are likely to be more touch points than maybe previously. So there will be a greater expectation. He's a very, you know, he's a certainly a very um relaxed demeanor, very articulate, presents well when he is in the media. So that, you know that's that's not an issue. But I don't know whether he'll necessarily be uh, proactive, but there will certainly be more expectation for him to be available just by virtue of the kind of heightened uh, attention on Vanuatu at the moment. The Vanuatu Daily Post reports that the man accused of making the death threat against Prime Minister Sato Kilman on Facebook last week has been hospitalised after fainting when being interviewed by police over the matter. Pacific political candidate has set his sights on a young Pacific vote in the upcoming New Zealand elections. After losing the Auckland mayoral race, a former Labour councillor for Anana Efeso Collins has swapped sides and is now a Green Party candidate. Standing for the Panmu Otahuhu electorate, which has been a safe seat for Labour, Fa'anana hopes his move to the Green Party would win the Pacifica voters. Elisha Foon spoke with Fa'anana about his ambitions ahead of the elections. And one of the things that I was challenged with when I was the Labour Party councillor was some of the backlash I got with some of the votes I did. You know, I was the only person that voted against the $134 million for the America's Cup, the regional fuel tax, because that had a huge impact on poorer communities. And I want the community to know that I'm going to put them first, irrespective of the party I'm in. And the Greens gives me the opportunity to speak boldly on the things I'm passionate about. So I've enjoyed uh, the move over and I'm enjoying the conversations that we have because... I think there's a lot of young people in particular who are really keen on climate justice and climate action, and that's where their particular focus is. So for those young people, they've now got someone to use as as an excuse at home when they say, well, look at Efeso, mum and dad, he's gone to the Greens. That means it validates their vote for the Greens. Right. So what are you passionate about this coming election? Obviously, climate change is is, um, forefront of mind for a lot of people and young people. Yeah, climate change is a big one, especially for our young people. Everyone in schools is talking about it. We've got a lot of university students and young people through youth groups. The other thing is cost of living. And people, Pamu Otahu has the highest number of renters in the country. And we know that they're paying exorbitant rents at the moment. We also know that the government is funding $2.4 billion transferring our taxpayer money into rents. That means that landlords are making heaps of money out of this. So as long as our people are renting, they're never going to access homes that they will own. A lot of those rental properties need a warrant of fitness check and a lot of them are lifting rents all the time. So those are the big issues for our families. And if 70% of your income is going towards rent, it means you cannot survive. It's close to impossible to survive and those are the key issues for me. Yeah. 
Let's dig into housing a little bit because that's that's a big issue for a lot of our families, multi-generational. Um, do you believe that the quality of housing that we have in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is sufficient for our Pacific communities? No, I don't think we've done enough research in making sure that it suits us. You know, the data tells us that for Pacific families, we have about 4.6 per. Um, children per, per family, which is well above the median rate. So we've got to look at the intergenerational aspect of our families that you've touched on. We want our grandparents to live with us. We're much more the village approach to family living. And we've got to have universal design. We know that a lot of our older families need wheelchair access, need lower sinks in the kitchen, all of those things we need to be thinking about. And I don't think we've given it enough thought. And we've got a lot of housing development that's going on, but it's not fast enough. And we've got to make sure that big families these large families are able to stay together and you know there's a whole lot of gentrification that's going on and that's causing huge anxiety in the community too because you might have to leave your state house you don't know if you'll be able to come back and kainga order whilst they're doing their best to build i'm not sure that their connection with the community is that strong so we've got to do better around housing mm. talk to me about how voting green could help that yeah, well, we've got a, a renters pledge that we've or a bill that we'd like to see to put a three percent cap on rentals per year to make sure that we increase the number of uh, houses that we're building. We can achieve that and get the twenty-four thousand people on waiting lists off that waiting list in the next five years. How many more houses? I think we've got, we're looking at about 5,000 houses a year. That's what our commitment is. And I think it's really possible. And the mixed tenure is also important. I live in an apartment complex which has got uh, social housing. You know, it's that mixed housing, private ownership. So when you're creating those kinds of communities, you've got different people coming into the community. And people have got somewhere to stay long term. We're not taking people away from a house every two or three years, which means they're changing schools. So we can do better with housing. And you know, we've offered the income guarantee, which means that we're going to have families with much more money and that's going to be provided for by wealth tax but what we need is for people to understand that we've got to be people we've got to be collaborative in our approach we can't just be greedy and I've got this sneaky suspicion that we're a little bit greedy we only want it for ourselves and we hoard what we've got to do is learn how to share better now you've been door knocking you've been speaking you know to a lot of different community members and um, you're you're well known in this space um, and so I want to know what are some of the main needs and issues that people are raising ahead of the election? Yeah, on the doors when we're out there knocking, a range of, of issues. One has been crime in the community. Uh, lots of parents are talking about seeing their children get through school and go on to achieve their dreams. Cost of living's been big, rental prices, the ability to stay in one place, and that has an impact. You know, When you've got the stability of housing, it has an impact on where you build your community and what schools you're able to go to. The other thing, I, I have a long, often have long conversations with people about what their dreams are for their children. I get this sneaky suspicion that there's some parents that feel a little deflated. They feel a little bit uh, neglected by the world, but they're, they're hopeful that their kids will be able to take on their aspirations. And that's the part of the door knocking that often saddens me because I've got young children. I want to see them flourish and do well and get to school. But I get a real sense in my heart when I'm talking with parents that they're not as hopeful given the situations they find themselves in. So I think this has got to be an election about hope. It's got to be about what we can do for each other. And that's what gives me the drive to keep going. But it's definitely something I'm picking up at the doors. 
It's well known that a lot of our Pacific communities uh, vote Labour <laughs> and speaking to some community leaders over the past uh, couple of weeks, they've told me that uh, there's still faith in the party but people are feeling a little disillusioned and there is some doubt, people are questioning things. Um, how would you rate the last six years of Labour government and um, why do you think people may be feeling that way? Yeah, I think when, when you look back to, to issues like COVID, I think the Labour government did extremely well. They were able to protect us. They saved th thousands of lives. But since then, we have, you know, with 65 MPs in the House, we haven't seen the kind of major transformational changes that they said they'd make. They said that climate change was their nuclear-free moment, and very little has been done. We've only recently got targets for different departments, uh, through the Greens, different departments, to set climate change targets. So I think they could have been way more transformational. I'll, I'll give them a five or a six. But that's why I'm with the Greens, because with the Greens in Parliament, we're able to really set the direction of the next term of parliament, hopefully of the next term of government, and that's going to be a major difference. And as you say, a lot of our Pasifika families are entrenched in Labour. I'm still having uh, a few interesting conversations with my mother, who's struggling to, to just get over the edge. She said, oh, I'm happy to give you my candidate vote, but I'm still struggling with the, with the party vote. But this is good because what we're seeing is a bit of a delineation between the generations, where mum's generation is still pretty much committed to Labour, and the younger generation are voting for climate and climate justice and that's where I think we've got a lot more impetus in reaching them so I think we've got this clear cut thing at the moment it's just warming people bridging that uh, conversation. Yeah. Documentary maker Clive Portable has been making films recording life and issues for Bougainvilleans for more than 25 years. But recently, his gear broke down and a group in Australia is trying to help him raise funds to replace it. One of the first documentaries he worked on was The Coconut Revolution, which detailed Bougainville's use of coconut oil to combat the blockade put in place by the Papua New Guinea government during the Civil War. Clive Portable told Don Wiseman about some of his other work. Yeah, the other one is... Uh some of my footage where he's one of your countrymen, uh, Will, will watch on it, something like that. He, he produced a soldiers without a gun. Soldiers will, without will, guns, yes. There are more of my footage in there from before the ceasefire. Second one, some ABC journalists use it, and uh, the other one, Will from New Zealand. And with Will and Dom, we did another follow-up, which Al Jazeera funded. We call it Reoffending All Wounds. One of the documentaries a lot of people would know is Orpia. Yes, and that's you... the latest one with uh, this Olivia and Alex from France here. So the topics that you choose to document are what specifically? Anything that relates to the outcome of the Civil War? Yes, I, I did one of uh, about three short documentaries myself. The first one is Panguna uh, Mindilima and Saving Our Land and Bougainville After the War. So with Panguna Dilima and Saving Our Land, it's mostly about uh, mining for those of us who don't want mining at the moment until independence. And after the war, it's like people are engaged in various jobs or start their own small incoming projects. Yes, and with these films, are you just putting them on YouTube mostly? What do you do? Uh, I used to uh, travel to Australia and screen it around Sunshine Coast groups in Melbourne, Adelaide, all those places. And you get interest. People have used your material. And the problem that you yeah. face is 
you don't have a camera because a camera that had been donated to you by, I think, an NGO has broken down and you need another one and you're basically pleading for a bit of help, going to the outside world and saying, please help me out. Is that right? Yes. So I put it on the Facebook and with the other filmmakers putting out this small fundraiser for me to get the new one. Yes. What What's it going to cost to get a new camera? Well, <laughs> I, I'm looking at this Canon, Canon XA60. It's about, I think, 1,900 Australian dollars. All right. Well, good luck with that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The Australian group endeavouring to ensure Clive has a new camera also wants to get him a new laptop. People wishing to support him can go to mycause.com.au. Businesses in Pogera Town, adjacent to the soon-to-be reopened Pogera Mine, are pleading for financial help from the Papua New Guinea government. In 2020, the mine was closed when the government and Barrick Gold couldn't reach agreement on a new lease. Those negotiations have taken three years, and now the mine is close to starting again, but Nick Pakir of the Pogera Chamber of Commerce says all the businesses struggled through the close-down, with some forced to shut down completely. Mr Pakir spoke with Don Wiseman. When the government rejected the renewal license, our businesses shut down as well. You know, Pogra is surrounded by the mountains. The mine is located about 700 uh, kilometers from Lee and about 2,000 above sea level. So it's where the road stops. Island highway stops. Mostly the businesses depend on the mine, Pogra Joel Mine. So when it starts down its operation 2020, April 20, our business went up as well. Just imagine the physical uh, workforce went home and then the power cut off, then the cash flow. So mostly cash flow is generated from the mines. So in the last three years, we have been facing a very critical time and uh, we have been facing a lot of challenges. We weren't able to pay uh, school fees as well. We weren't able to meet the daily life. Some of the clients or especially equipment we are recalled and taken back by the bank. You want the government to step up. What do you want from the government? Now we see that 5149 benefits split between the Papua New Guinea stakeholders, including us, landowners, and the Global Order Barrick. So, the last four years, the government slogan of short term pain for long term gain was good, and we acknowledge that. We did face the problem. Actually, it was a short term pain for long term gain. But for us, we see that is long-term pain. So we lost some of the businesses gone for good. Therefore, we want the government to at least, one, stimulate payments for us so that at least we make or we recoup what we lost because we did start the business from the skits. And then when we were just simply cut off, we need compensation by the state. Secondly, we want state and Diploma or New Pogra Limited in the Diploma Forum to put 20 million of plus money into the National Development Bank as credit guarantee schemes so that that will give us financial freedom to access in order to reactivate our business. Thirdly, for example, Commerce is asking the anger provincial government to pay off our outstanding bank loans from the 20 million 
business development grant money or the provincial government got it from the uh, prime minister on the 28th July 2023 and the provincial government got first initial 20 million kina from the business development grant so i am asking the Enga provincial government to offset our bank loans that are, that we are still struggling to pay what sort of response have you had from the government i did submit this through the position paper yesterday to the mining minister and the state negotiating team and MRA. So I am still waiting for them. Yes, I can imagine the government is going to come back to you and say, well, look, the mine's not operating yet. There's no money as such being generated at this point. You'll have to wait a while at least. Well, because the government is putting business development grant, some of that money should, should really pass. Instead of assisting us, the government is is going to the provincial government, to the to the people, to the stakeholders, but overlooking us, the directly affected people. Therefore, you know, at least we see that there is a possibility when they have the funding, they need to compensate us at least with something, or at least pay off our bank loans that we are still struggling to pay because we are not making any money. That's Pacific Waves for today. Don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, till fast week four.